0: Well, uh, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, If if we haven't met yet, if you don't know who I am, my name is Stephen Obert. I'm the youth director here, Um, and uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, Pastor Joshua Kirstein is our regular preaching pastor, and we are truly blessed to sit under Josh's faithful exposition of God's Word week in and week out. I occasionally get to fill in for him so that he can enjoy some time off, and it really is my joy to do so. If you've been with us for any time, you know that we have recently finished uh, walking through the book of James. It's a series that we titled Faith at Work. Josh has taught these last few weeks on Soli Deo Gloria, as the sermon uh, bumper video showed you, and I believe he has a couple more sermons uh, on that topic. But today, I get the opportunity to do a standalone sermon that, that really kind of creates this unique bridge between faith at work and God's glory alone. My hope is that the connection will be convicting, that it will be encouraging, uh, that it will be helpful, and that it will be very practical. I've titled this series uh, or this sermon this morning The Juxtaposition of Following Christ. Juxtaposition is defined as the fact of two things being seen or placed close together with contrasting effect. Now, I thought about calling the sermon, Count the Cost, because Christ really is making this point in the passage that we're going to live in this morning. However, I wanted us to see kind of a, a bigger picture connection through what Christ is going to say when he calls people to count the cost, and then through the two series that we've kind of been living in. Far too often in our current culture, people profess to have belief in God and Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they live as if they are the Lord of their own life. Now, to be clear, anytime a, a Christian sins, we are practically doing this. We are professing that Jesus is Lord, but we are deciding to be the Lord in those moments. The difference between a, a false profession of faith. And a true profession of faith will be the way in which we fight and endure to the end in the faith that God has given us. Now we know that no one is saved by their works. You are not saved by what you do. Now if you've walked through the recent James series with us, you'll know how clear this truth is. However, the Bible is also clear that those who have been truly saved... Those who have been born again unto new life in Christ will do real battle with their sin. They won't be sinless, but their lives will look radically different than the lives of those who live of or in the world. Now there's a very clear section of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke, and there are similar parallel passages in Mark and Matthew that draw out the cost of being a Christian. In Luke, the words that are used really grab our attention. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to dig into this passage this morning. I also wanted to bring some clarity to the passage, to what the words are, are truly saying. In the part of Luke that we'll look at today, Jesus commands all people who may think of following him to count the cost of being his disciple. There is a, a prevalent and unfortunate idea called easy believism. That has led many to think that they are right with God so long as they check off certain activities like church attendance or praying occasionally. Maybe uh, you show up on, on Easter and Christmas. Maybe you read your Bible once in a while. Some people even believe if they just say they're Christian that they are Christian. What we'll see in the text this morning is that Jesus didn't want people to falsely understand what it meant to follow him. If we who have professed faith haven't collectively understood the warning that we're going to see, then it's most certainly worth reviewing for us as well. Will you bow your heads and join with me in prayer? Fathers, we come together this morning to sit under your word, to fellowship as a body. We ask that you would first and foremost be glorified in our time. We know that this would produce the greatest joy that we can have, and so we always set that as our aim. Lord, as we dig into today's sermon, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand correctly the deep and lasting love that you have for your people. Give us wisdom and discernment. Let me properly handle your word of truth, and let us worship you in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You see, because God is gracious and good, there is a unique juxtaposition that we come to see in God's word about the life of a true believer, a disciple of Jesus. As Josh has said clearly in his last few sermons on Soli Deo Gloria, we exist first and foremost, as does the entirety of creation, to glorify God. We will also see, as we dig in this morning, that when when God saves us and commands us, To be about his glory first and foremost, it is simultaneously the very thing that brings us the greatest joy. You see, God is the utmost treasure of the universe. He is the most supreme being that exists. Everything that exists was created by God to bring glory, honor, and praise to him. God is first and foremost about himself. Now, if God were first and foremost about anything other than himself, it would make him an idolater, and he would cease to be God. It is not arrogant for God to be first and foremost about himself. It is not arrogant because he alone is actually and ultimately worthy. Arrogance comes when someone who is not ultimately worthy tries to assume the throne that is rightly reserved for God alone. In fact, what we see in Scripture is that it is actually quite loving that God is first and foremost about himself. We're going to hear more on this later. The text that we will be living in this morning is found in Luke chapter 14. We're going to read verses 25 through 33. I'm going to give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already so that you can follow along with me. Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 33. I can still hear pages turning, so I just want to make sure you have a chance to get there. Luke 14, 25, sorry, through 35. I need to make that adjustment. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all Uh, As usual, if you guys uh, have got to listen to me preach, I really like to lay out kind of where we're going to go in our morning. So uh, I typically have three points that I really want to draw out. And so it is with this morning's sermon. I have three main points uh, that I want us to see in this passage and various other passages. First, I want us to see that Christ commands complete and utter devotion. Second, I want us to see that this command is for our joy. And then third, I want us to see that God's glory and our joy endure. Through the roughest circumstances, through the trials of life, these two things endure. So again, first, Christ commands complete and utter devotion. Second, this command is for our joy. And third, God's glory and our joy endure. So point one, Christ commands complete and utter devotion devotion. Um, Before I dive into it, let let me just say that the first part of this is kind of heavy. And so so walk with me through it. Bear bear with the text. Let the weight kind of sit. And when we get to our second point, you're going to see why it's such a beautiful, beautiful command from our Lord. If you are to follow Jesus, you must be completely about him. I've used the word follower here intentionally. All who claim to be Christians are claiming to be Christ followers. The word disciple in this text was not a word reserved for those few apostles being discipled by Jesus. This word was a a broader meaning, and if you miss it, you're going to miss what Jesus is commanding for you. So let's look again at the passage and begin our breakdown. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. So let's pause right here. Notice the clarity in the passage, church. Great crowds were beginning to follow Christ. So when Jesus speaks in verse 26, what he is about to say is being said to these great crowds that are following him. This was not simply a command to the twelve disciples who were closest to Jesus. This was a command given to the great crowds, and therefore a command given to any after them who would follow Jesus. We see this even more clearly in verses 26 and 27. Luke 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, the clarity Jesus makes here is that anyone who might come after him, whoever comes after me and doesn't do these things or meet this requirement, we could understand it better this way. Anyone who wishes to follow Jesus must meet this criteria. If you are claiming to be a Christian, a Christ follower, then this command must be true of you. Now I make that clarity because I do believe often that people will see this passage and they'll think it's just reserved for those apostles and their utter devotion to Jesus. If we read this command here as only applying to those who were really close, like the apostles, it would be a misunderstanding on our part. Church, we have to see that this is not the case. It is quite clear that Jesus is saying, anyone who follows me, who wants to be my disciple, must meet this standard. Now notice something else here. Jesus was not watering down the truth about his supreme authority just to keep some large crowds. Now, Unfortunately, there are many churches professing to preach the word and the gospel of Jesus that would likely have said, whoa, Jesus, wait a minute, what are you doing? Don't say that. If you say something like that, those crowds are going to leave. Hold on, what are you? that's not how you keep large crowds. But Jesus was not concerned about having large crowds follow him. Jesus was concerned that anyone would come after him and not fully understand that he must be the supreme treasure of their life or they would not be fit to follow him. Jesus is declaring quite clearly here that in order to follow him, in order to be a Christian, we must love him and live for him in such a way that all other relationships are seen as inferior. If you want to be a Christian, that's anyone who would come after Christ, you must be so utterly devoted to him that in the most intimate human relationships that you and I have, it would seem as though you hate all others, including yourself, when compared to your love and devotion to Christ Jesus. Jesus will not be second place. In fact, the clarity he brings here shows us that he won't even be close to the other affections in our life. If our love for him doesn't outweigh our love for all other things, and so much so that it appears like we hate others, in comparison to him we cannot be his disciple church if you claim to be a christian then you claim to be a disciple of christ if you do not love him supremely then jesus himself claims that you cannot be his disciple now the word hate in this passage stands out right it's it's not something you would expect to hear jesus say Jesus commanded me to hate. That, that doesn't sound like anything I've heard about this Jesus, and it really seems to be used intentionally. I mean, it, it grabs our attention, and so I want to shed some light on this word that was used in Luke. The Greek word translated hate in this passage is the word miseo, and I'm probably mispronouncing that because I'm not great at it. But uh, it's used four ways in the New Testament. It means to hate. It means to detest. It means to love less or to esteem less. Now what we understand about Scripture and God himself is that neither neither God nor Scripture will ever contradict themselves. As we've covered the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the Bible in our catechism lessons at midweek, we've seen this truth over and over again. So when we see something in Scripture that seems to contradict something else we've seen, we have work to do to rightly understand it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we are to love our enemies. Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so... In Luke, Jesus said, hate mother and father, and here in Matthew, he says, love your enemy. Like, what's going on with these passages? When Jesus says that we must hate those who are closest to us, the most intimate relationships we have, he's not contradicting his command here to love your enemy. The way in which the word miseo is being used is obviously meant to declare that we must love these other things far less than we love Jesus, we know the word of God is intentional. God has given his word a purpose, and he said it will not return to him empty, but that it will accomplish all that he intends for it to accomplish. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus uses the word hate to draw out the point of how much more we must treasure him above all other things. The chosen word here most accurately means that in comparison to children, spouse, parents, all of those intimate, deep, loving relationships you may have, even in comparison to the love you have for your own life, Your love for Jesus must be so far above those things that if compared, it would seem as though you hate them. Your love of your mom compared to your love of Jesus must have such a great gap that set side by side, it would look like hatred towards your mom. That's why he chose this word here. Now, As a side note, not a a primary note, there's a juxtaposition here as well. When I love Jesus as supreme, and so supremely that it appears that I hate those closest to me, it truly is the most loving thing I can do for them, too. Don't be afraid, parents, that loving Christ so much more than your kids will appear as hating them. If Jesus is your ultimate treasure... You will be freed up to truly love your kids in a way that is not possible otherwise. Here's what I mean. My identity and worth are not bound up in my kids. They are rooted in the rock-solid, unchanging Lord of all, Jesus Christ. So when my kids fail, I haven't failed. When they attack me, as sinful kids will, they don't hurt my heart in such a way that I respond towards them sinfully. Why? Well, because I love my kids through my love for Jesus as my Lord. I am freed up to love them well, and I don't make idols out of them, which actually helps me to truly love them. You see, When they fail, when they sin, and they will, uh, parents, yes, amen, okay, Uh, when they specifically attempt to hurt my heart, my heart is so wrapped up in Christ that their sinful actions won't have the desired effect, and I will be able to love them regardless of what might seem like their animosity towards me. And this is what it means to love Christ above all things. Jesus gave his life for me when I did not deserve it. I can sacrifice my pride and my desire to have beautiful, amazing kids when they don't deserve it. Now I will love them for God's sake. And God will never fail me, so my love for them will never fail. Do you see the connection? Why would Jesus use this word hate? Why would Jesus command such allegiance in order to rightly follow him? Well, we see a clear reason for this in a parallel passage found in Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Christ in his mercy is making it clear that his followers will likely have to choose between him and their very own family. This reality is all too clear for many of you here at Disciples Church. Your faith has cost you deep relationships with relatives and with longtime loved friends. And in this hard truth, so long as Jesus is your ultimate treasure, you will never depart from true faith. You will instead be able to have joy even in the midst of great heartache. On the other hand, though, If your family is your treasure, then when you are pressed, you will walk away from Christ to have that relationship, and it will eventually show you that you were never truly gods in the first place, unless you come to realize the error and repent and turn to Christ. In this case, your faith was not a genuine faith, but a false profession. You actually had gods in your life that you loved more than Jesus. This is the very thing that Jesus was concerned about for this great crowd. Would you follow me because you think I'll bring you temporary joy? You saw me feed you lots of fish with a little bit of fish, and so now you want to follow me? You think I'm I'm here to meet these temporary pleasures, these temporary needs? Jesus said, if you follow me, it will actually cost you temporary joy. It may cost you family It may cost you deep and intimate relationships. And we see this clearly in the parallel in the Matthew passage. Truly following Christ may cost you your very life. At least life as they knew it when Jesus spoke these truths. This is the very reason Jesus declares that we must consider the cost of being his disciple. Luke 14, 28-32 For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while he is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. If a king is taking out 10,000 and meeting an army of 20,000, it probably isn't going to go well for him. It's probably going to cost him and his army their life. And Jesus says, don't, don't follow me because you think I'm going to give you something. C- count the cost if you want to follow me, it means you've, you've truly got to make me the Lord of all things, so far above all other things that it appears as though you hate them. Do you see the clarity, church? Now, as I said earlier, if this feels a bit harsh, I want to ask you to consider this. If Jesus knew That you did not truly love him above all things, if Jesus knew you were deceiving yourself and following him but not truly devoted to him, if he knew that you would continue on this way and that it would cost you your eternal life, would it be loving for him to let you carry on without warning you of the true condition of your hearts? Would it be loving of Jesus to go, yeah, you're good, you're okay. And then one day to stand on the judgment throne and go, I never knew you. Of course not. If you are headed toward danger and someone loves you, they will tell you you're headed toward danger. Even if it costs them their relationship with you. This is why we are commanded to speak the truth In love. Jesus says so clearly in this passage from Luke that your utter love and devotion to him makes him first. And that the next closest thing far down the rung in comparison would actually make it appear as if you hated those other things rather than loved them. Church Jesus will not just be first on the throne of your heart, he will be first in such a way that nothing will come close to taking his rightful place. Now that is a great cost. All the things you love and 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 hear me, rightly so, love your family, love your kids, love your spouse, Love your life. Thank the Lord for giving you life. Those things are okay things to love. They're good things to love. But in comparison to Jesus, they must be lesser and far lesser. It is not God, one, wife, two, children, three. It is Jesus and then way down here in some absurd number, wife and children and family, right? And that's kind of the point that Christ is making in this passage. Being utterly devoted to Christ above all other things is what it means that Jesus is Lord. Jesus sits on the throne. Not me, not my wife, not my kids, not my parents. It must be this way for the Christian because if we set our hope, our joy, our faith, and our eyes on anything less than Christ himself, they will fail us. Church, God is gracious in this command to us, which leads me to our next point this morning, point two. This command is for our joy. So thank you for sticking with me through the weight of that first part. Um, and, And let's dig into this second point. God knows what you and I don't know. God, who never changes, gives us a rock-solid foundation in himself. If God allowed us to love or treasure something above him, he would be allowing us to love something that will fail us and bring us great hurt and heartache. How many times growing up did your parents tell you to avoid something that you really wanted or really wanted to do? And now looking back, you can see the bigger picture of why your parents told you to follow their instruction. You may have thought in the moment that they were trying to keep you from joy, from something you believed would bring you happiness. But the truth of the matter is that because your parents had a greater knowledge, they were actually fighting for your greatest joy. They were trying to keep you from hurt and sorrow. Thus it is with God, our Heavenly Father. God has exhaustive knowledge. God also reveals to us in his great mercy and kindness that like a parent, he commands us unto certain things. And even though in our immaturity we may consider these things to rob us of some joy, what we will see, either in the life that he gives us or in eternity with him, is that God was protecting us from hurt, from sorrow. He was fighting for a greater joy for us. God's commands are for our good, even if we fail to understand that in our lack of knowledge and in our immaturity. If we knew what God knew, we would never ask for anything other than what God has done, nor commit ourselves to anything other than what God has commanded. You see, the juxtaposition that exists for the believer is revealed here in our second point. And Think about it. When we consider that God, in his infinite mercy and goodness, has made our pursuit of his glory above all other things in our life, our sacrificing of our life for his glory, Simultaneously, the very thing that brings us the greatest joy, it reveals a juxtaposition. As John Piper would say it, He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is not after our begrudging submission. Rather, He desires a joyful and submissive heart. We see this clarity in the Gospel of John i 'm going to read a passage that 's not on the on the screen because I didn't get it in there in time John fourteen fifteen reads, If you love me, you will keep your, my commandments John fifteen ten and eleven reads, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full We see the beauty of this juxtaposition in the passage from John. Jesus declared that our obedience born out of our love for him would also bring us our greatest joy, our fullest joy, complete joy. God has commanded us to lay down our desires and to treasure him above all other things. Obedience to this command is also the very thing that would bring us the greatest joy and fulfillment in our earthly lives and through eternity. This is sacrificial gain. It's a giving up of life to truly gain life. Now to be clear, we would never obey this command if it were not out of our love for Jesus. We are commanded to love God above all things. And when God in his mercy and grace gives us faith, we are given a new heart that does most certainly love God above all things. Out of this love, we begin to see God's commands as gracious and good for us. And we have a new desire to obey these commands because of our new heart given to us when God caused us to be born again. When we are obedient to these commands, we receive the fullest joy. Now, don't miss this. Even though this is the way God designed all of this to be, God was not obligated to do it that way. So let me say that again. Even though God designed our world, our existence, and this reality to be the way it is, that living for his glory above all things also brings us the greatest joy God was not obligated to do it that way uh, i've been on a princess bride kick lately, so when I, when I thought about this point I, I, I immediately went to the scene where wesley is is coming for the treasure of his heart, and Fezzik, Andre the giant is waiting for Wesley to come around a corner. Wesley comes around a corner and he kind of pauses and he 's looking and. This massive rock, the size of his head, goes whipping past him and explodes on the wall behind him. And Fezzik looks at him and he says, I did that on purpose. I don't have to miss. Church, God has done this on purpose. He was not obligated to do it this way, God was gracious. God is the creator of the universe. He is the very reason that you and I have breath in our lungs and a beat in our heart. God, who is currently commanding all things like oxygen molecules and hearts to beat, does continue doing this at this very moment. If God were to withdraw his breath from the earth, we would all perish. Job 34, verse 13-15. through Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Job understood that we are utterly dependent upon God for every second of our lives. If God were to pull back his spirit and breath the whole earth would perish. Man would return to dust. We are dependent for our very lives upon God, whether we want to admit it or not. God is the one who is holding all things together by the word of his mouth. He is doing this right now. You see far too often people come across a passage like our main passage in Luke And they either excuse it as a command from Jesus to those super believers, or they view it as an arrogant demand from a needy God. And these views are incorrect at best and wicked at worst. If God were to command you to devote yourself to anything less than him, he would be unloving. He is the only one worthy of your utter devotion. He is the only one who can keep his word and does so forever. He is the only unchanging one. He is the only supreme one. If God allowed us to make an idol of lesser things, this would not be loving of him. Actually, what the Bible declares is that if God hands us over to the idols of our heart, it's actually his judgment. If God were to hand us over to our sinful desires and lesser gods, they would fail us, and they would leave us hurt and wanting. And if he were to hand us over too long, it would leave us in utter eternal ruin. See God's mercy, and that he would create a world and a people and command complete obedience and devotion to himself, while simultaneously making that obedience the greatest joy that we could possibly have. God could have commanded obedience simply on the basis of his authority. He did not have to make our obedience a joy. However, we see God's mercy and goodness in that he did both. And this is why I've used the word juxtaposition. You see, in my mind, these two things seem to be at odds. Sacrifice is not usually equated with joy, Utter devotion does not usually equal rich receiving. Giving up your life does not usually equal gaining your life. If I was to be utterly devoted to God, selflessly pursuing him above all other other things, even above my own desires and interests, why am I brought such joy? Now, a a, a tough question that I've personally wrestled with is this. If I am brought such joy... Am I doing this for God or for myself? Catch this point. God didn't just say my utter devotion to and pursuit of him would bring me joy. He said it would bring me fullness of joy. So should I be trying to suppress that joy that an obedient heart receives from pursuing God rightly so that I'm not making this about me? Well, of course not. In fact, I would argue that this would be an impossible thing to do. The way this wrestle has come up for me in my younger years especially was this. If I'm obeying my Lord, if I'm living for Him and not myself, and it's bringing me joy, am am I obeying for this selfish fulfillment of joy? Or out of the overflow of an abundant love that my heart has for my Lord and Savior? You see, if I'm trying to obey because I'm desperate for joy... Then I would surely not be loving God above all things, but rather I would be loving joy. However, when we pursue God without restraint, because our hearts cannot be settled with anything less than Him, then the joy that we receive from the sacrificial pursuit is simply the gracious consequence of a kind and loving God. I had for many years felt this tension. In loving Jesus above all things and truly way above all things, I was also fulfilling my greatest need and joy, and therefore it it seemed as if I was loving myself. The tension between doing what seemed selfish and yet rightly honoring Christ as supreme was tough for me until I realized this was God's mercy. A kindness of God expressed through the uniqueness of God's purpose for his image bearers to glorify Him above all things. It is okay, Christian, to enjoy loving Jesus as supreme. In fact, it would be impossible to rightly love Him above all other things without it bringing you this great joy. Now, to be clear, if you pursue Jesus first and foremost for joy, you have bought the lie of a prosperity-type gospel that cannot save you. However, if the first purpose, the first inclination of your heart is to love him above all other things because of who he is, well, then you'll also reap the gracious benefits of the fullness of joy in your love of Jesus as Lord. This is incredible. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, church, if if God is your delight, then God has graciously given you faith, and he will give you himself, the very desire of your heart. This passage is not saying that you can delight in God and he'll give you material blessings. This passage is saying ever so clearly that if God is your delight, he will give you himself. In fact, the only reason God would be a delight to you as if he had already given you faith and therefore secured you to him eternally. God will give you the desires of your heart because he has given himself for you. You are his. You are now hidden in Christ. You belong to God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The false lies of worldly prosperity are no saving gospel. In fact, Jesus was making it clear to those crowds, those great crowds that were following him. He was telling them, if I'm not your treasure, then you haven't counted the cost. Don't follow me for temporary prosperity. It's going to cost you way more than that to follow me. Which brings me to my final point. God's glory and our joy endure. Church, when circumstances are falling down, all around you, when things are as bad as you can imagine them to be, you will not lack joy in your heart if your heart is first and foremost devoted to Jesus as Lord. If you love Jesus so much so that all other things you love appear as if you hate them, then the thing you love, above all other things and I mean far above all other things, is the very thing that can never be taken from you. It's the very thing that never falls down all around you. It's the very thing that never fails you, never leaves you nor forsakes you. Church, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in today, if Christ Jesus is your ultimate treasure, no one can take him from you. Understanding the sacrifice of following Jesus was what Jesus wanted the great crowds to see in verse 27 of Luke chapter 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In fact, Jesus says the same thing again in Matthew, which we've already read, but let's read it again to refresh ourselves. Matthew ten thirty-eight and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus declares that utter devotion to him will also include a life of sacrifice. The cross was a torture device meant to make a statement and cause the bearer of it great suffering. Jesus was using the cross language here to point toward the sacrifice that he would make on it for his beloved knowing full well that we would understand the depths of this reality one day. Jesus also knew that if we are to truly follow him, it would mean a life of sacrifice. We are to live our lives sacrificing our other personal desires in light of our desire for God and obedience to him. And even though this is difficult to do at times, as difficult as bearing a cross, so to speak, it will also give us The treasure of our hearts, namely Jesus Christ Himself. Now, notice the clarity in verse 39 from the Matthew passage. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you see the juxtaposition? Lose life to find life, sacrifice to gain. God is good. And he shows his kindness in this reality. I've made this statement many times in sermons, and, and it truly is one I believe and agree with wholeheartedly, but I think it could use some clarity. The statement goes like this. A life poured out for others is no wasted life. Now, to be fair, I'm, I'm really quite certain I heard that from somebody else. Like It wasn't an original genius thought of mine. But, you know, I just can't remember who I heard it from, so I'm not trying to rob credit for that, but... Um, I also realize that this statement, if not given some content, can be misunderstood. You see, there are many people who live their lives pouring into others, pouring out their time and desires for others. However, they never truly have as their foundation a desire to pour out their lives ultimately for the glory of God. If you spend your life on others for any other ultimate purpose— than to glorify God. Church, that would be a waste. This is why Jesus warned the great crowds, saying, if you're going to follow me for any other reason than your utter devotion and love for me, then you are wasting your life. You're unfit. You cannot be my disciple. And maybe this clarity will help. Jesus didn't just say, whoever loses his life, For others' sake, will find it. He said, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, often giving up your life for Christ plays itself out practically in pouring out your life for others' sake. And since this is the case, my point in the statement of a life poured out not being a wasted life has always had at its foundation the ultimate aim of glorifying. God. However, I think this clarity really helps us to see that phrase with right eyes. Church, if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. You will prove that you had some other treasures above God, and that means you never truly had God. And if you give up your life for others but never loved Jesus as your greatest treasure, then you were never his disciple. Avoid both of these pitfalls. See the great joy of obeying and loving God above all things, and even in the greatest moments of suffering, God brings in this life. Hold fast to him as your treasure, and you will always have joy. You see, many times it is God's mercy that brings us to truly trying and difficult times. Many times, Christian, when God is stripping you of every joy in your life and you are wondering what has happened and how long you might be able to endure this, God is graciously stripping these fleeting idols from your heart to draw your eyes unto him again. God in his great mercy is reminding you of the one thing that no one and no circumstance can take from you, namely God himself. Church, this is God actively being merciful to you to bring you suffering. It is the way he sees fit to remind you of your desperate need for him and to save you from making your life about something less. When God does this, fall to your knees and thank him for saving you from a wasted life with no Purpose. Remember that losing your life now for God's glory will actually bring you true life. Church, we don't do this to be saved. I, I-, I want to say that again just for clarity. We don't do this to be saved. And we cannot do this if we are not already saved. It's impossible. How can you love God If you don't believe in him. If you are here this morning and you have made your life about yourself, please hear this. The harder you try to hold on, the greater your loss will be. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The cost of this failure to meet God's righteous requirements is death. But the story doesn't end there, church. God entered into humanity when Jesus, the second person of the triune God, was born to a virgin and takes on a human nature at the incarnation. Jesus met the righteous requirements of God, the very thing we could not do. Jesus did not deserve death. He did not fail or sin in any way. Yet Jesus poured out his life for others with the ultimate aim of glorifying God the Father. Jesus did this because the Father sent him to do this. And he did it because he knew that his life would be the only way that we could ever have true life. Christ gave his own life for sinners, for his elect people. If you are here this morning and you're still trying to hold on to your life, please hear me. True life is not found there. If you keep your life, you will lose it. Repent of making life about you, turn to Jesus who did not have to pour out his life for sinners, but willingly chose to glorify the Father and to save his beloved from their sin by the giving of his perfect life, the pouring out of his blood for the salvation of all who would believe. This is the gospel, church. This is the good news. You don't have to lose your life and be fooled into thinking that you're actually keeping it. Turn to Jesus. Trust in his finished work on the cross. Confess your sins to God and repent from them. Turn away from them. Trust that he will be your everlasting joy. Love him so far above all other things that in comparison, it seems as if you hate them. Lose your life now for Christ and his name, and you will find true life. Life eternal, with the greatest treasure of your heart. God is so merciful that he commands us to love him above all things so that no matter how difficult life gets, the treasure of our hearts can never, never be taken from us. In this, God's glory and our joy endure. I hope you've seen the points that I wanted to share with you this morning. Christ commands complete and utter devotion. And this is a gracious command that brings us true life and unwavering joy. And living for God's glory not only gives us endurance through the toughest circumstances in life, but it also gives us graciously joy. Christ commands complete obedience. Obeying this command brings us joy. And God's glory and our joy always endure. My hope is that you'll see the connection between faith at work from our James series and soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. Everything is created for God's glory. We are commanded to love Jesus above all other things for his glory and for our joy. We do this out of the overflow of a heart that has been made new and does not sit idle. It is our faith at work. James declared that true faith would show itself to be true by the life that it lives. Jesus said, if you wish to find life, you must give up your life for me and then you will have true life. Do you see how all these dots connect? Christian, God has been merciful to bring you from dead in your sins to alive in Christ. With this new heart, from new birth, we have new desires. Desires to love And obey God. Jesus made it clear this must be our highest desire. And God reveals His goodness and grace, and that He makes this the very thing that would also bring us the greatest joy. This juxtaposed life of following Christ for His glory and our joy is truly amazing. It is a sweet gift from a good God. Church, a life poured out for others. With God's glory as the foundation is no wasted life. May we continue to lean in to our gracious Savior and let go of the lesser things in life that we tend to cling to. May we make much of God's holy name and fulfill the great commission Christ sent us out with. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20 And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sacrifice, receive. Lose, gain. Give up and have. That is the Christian life. And Jesus is always with us. If he is the treasure of your hearts, then you will always have the desire of your heart. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your gracious commanding of our hearts. Lord, that you would make the pursuit of your glory above all things also The greatest thing that we could do with our lives, that it would bring us the greatest joy we could possibly have. You're so gracious to us. You're not obligated. You weren't obligated to send your son, and you're not obligated to bring us joy. Where where those realities aren't clear in our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you show us our great need to see your value and your worth? your holiness, and our wretchedness and sin. God, would you bring us to repentance? Would you turn our hearts from desiring lesser things that will fail us unto you who could never fail? We rest, Lord, in the promises that you've made knowing that you alone, God, can keep your word, that you never fail, that you never leave. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.